On June the 7th, 1976, the New York magazine published a non-fiction article, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, written by London-born journalist Nick Cohn. Detailing the disco scene in Brooklyn's Bay Ridge, the film rights were immediately snapped up by music impresario Robert Stigwood, and on December the 16th of the next year, Paramount Pictures released Saturday Night Fever. While the film was a cultural phenomenon almost from the day it opened, its reputation took a knock some 20 years later, when Cohn admitted to the same magazine that his article was less non-fiction and more complete fabrication. But surprising as Cohn's confession was, what was almost completely overlooked from the day the film was released was the startling differences between the supposedly real-life character Cohn initially wrote about and how that personality was tailored to fit the screen. Films always take liberties with their source materials. Pinocchio, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Apocalypse Now, Forrest Gump. But comparing Cohn's initial prose to John Badham's finished film is an instructive lesson in adaptation. The film we know has John Travolta as Tony Manero, a 19-year-old gifted dancer who lives with his parents, grandmother and sister in a two-storey house on 92nd Street in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Works a dead-end job in a hardware store a few blocks away on 73rd Street and on weekends heads over to 8th Avenue to dance at the 2001 Space Odyssey nightclub. It's not just the high point of his week, Tony lives to dance. In Cohn's article, Tony is Vincent, and while he loves to dance, he lives on the 11th floor of a high-rise on 4th Avenue and 66th Street with what remains of his family. His father is in prison, one of his brothers was killed in Vietnam, a second has been in hospital for almost a year, recovering from a car crash that crushed both his legs, while a third brother committed the ultimate neighbourhood sin by fleeing across the East River to the freedom of Greenwich Village because he couldn't bear the stifling conformity of Bay Ridge. Listen, we gotta keep in touch. Yeah, you gonna like this settlement house or what do you think? Uh, I'll do until I figure out my next move. Yeah. What about you? What about me? Are you gonna do something with your dancing, Tom? I don't know. I don't, people ask me all the time, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I feel like my whole life, right? I, I, I've been told I'm the no good in the family, and that Tony, the only way you're gonna survive is to do what you think is right, not what they keep trying to jam you into. You let them do that, and you're gonna end up nothing but miserable. But suffocating as Bay Ridge may be, what goes on inside Vincent's head is even more stifling. Cone's piece runs for eight and a half thousand words. But it isn't until you're one-fifth of the way in that Cohn finally spells out just who Vincent really is. Before Saturday night began, to clear his brain of cobwebs and get himself sharp, fired up, he liked to think about killing. Silently, as slowly as possible, he would go from one to a hundred. It was now, while he counted, that he thought about death. Mostly, he thought about guns. On certain occasions, if he felt that he was getting stale, he might also dwell on knives on karate chops and flying kung fu kicks, even on laser beams. But always, in the last resort, he came back to bullets. It felt just like a movie. Cone's Vincent is less Travolta's hedonistic young dancer and more Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle. All the animals come out at night. 
Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. If that sounds like a stretch, just remember the taxi driver was still fresh in theatres while Cohn was researching his article. Taxi Driver had been released on February the 8th, and by May, the film had earned Martin Scorsese the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. But while Norman Wexler's screenplay retained many unsavoury aspects of Vincent's personality, the film doesn't present Tony as homicidal. Instead, he frequently appears lost, confused, and in large part due to Travolta's charisma, quite sympathetic. However, that charisma covers over a multitude of vices. Tony attempts to rape his dance partner, Stephanie, played by Karen Lynn Gorney, and moments later, he sits passively in the front seat of the same car, while his former dance partner, Annette, played by Donna Pesco, is gang-raped by his friends on the back seat. Just like Scorsese's earlier picture, Mean Streets, these young men are deeply tribal and pathologically hostile to anyone outside of their own clique. Hey, looking sharp, huh? Sharp as you can look without turning into a nigger. Or a speck. Speck, speck. Would you put your dick in a speck? Does it get bigger in a nigger? I don't know. What are you anyway? You nice girl or you cunt? I don't know. Both? You can't be both. I mean, that's the thing a girl's got to decide early on. You gotta decide whether you're gonna be a nice girl or a cunt. Saturday Night Fever may be a product of its time, with Tony only reflecting the behaviour of many male Brooklynites in the mid-1970s. But consider how, just two years earlier, another New York-based movie chose to treat its real-life characters no matter how they identified. So now what? What are you going to do? Well, I thought... Uh, I thought that I would go back to the hospital. You know, they're, they're really nice there. I mean, they're, they're, they really seem like they're trying to help me. So then that's good then, right? You found something. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I have or not. So are you going to still have the operation? Yeah. Yeah. Even though it is not a musical, any film set in New York that is so dominated by songs immediately draws comparisons to the likes of 42nd Street, On the Town and West Side Story. But if you pay closer attention, you might find another unexpected source that perhaps influenced the film's opening sequence. Tony struts along Brooklyn Boulevard as if keeping the beat to the Bee Gees night fever. He stops by a shoe store and checks what's on offer against what he is wearing. He gets himself a slice of pizza and enters a clothes shop to place a down payment for a garment in the window. Resuming his route, he pesters a female pedestrian coming in the opposite direction, but she succeeds in fobbing him off. And all the while the music plays up, or fades away, or stops, only to resume, all with the aim of showing how dominant music is in Tony's life, while also creating a sense of energy in the story. Now look at and listen to how John Schlesinger used Harry Nielsen's Everybody's Talking from the opening sequence in Midnight Cowboy. You know what you can do with them dishes. And if you ain't man enough to do it for yourself, I'd be happy to oblige. I really would. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. 
John Voight's Joe Buck does similar things. Gets dressed, goes to work, leaves work, walks the streets, propositions women, and all the while the song plays up or fades away or stops, only to resume, thus indicating what is on Joe's mind while also creating a great momentum in the story. I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. Going well the weather suits my clothes. The interesting thing about the use of songs in both films is that they are written without any knowledge of, or intention, that they will be used in a film. For Midnight Cowboy, Bob Dylan had initially been approached, but his song Lay Lady Lay didn't fit so Harry Nielsen was offered the brief. However, Schlesinger found Nielsen's composition, I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City, didn't work either. So instead, Schlesinger chose another song Nielsen had sung, a cover written in 1966 by Fred Neal. Something similar happened with Saturday Night Fever. Most of the film had already been shot by the time producer Robert Stigwood contacted the Bee Gees asking if they would pen some songs of the film. Yes, Stigwood was their manager, but beyond that, the approach in itself was a risk. The Bee Gees were known as balladeers. There's a light, a certain kind of light, that never shone on me. I want my life to be To Love Somebody, Massachusetts and I've Just Gotta Get a Message to You had all been hits in the late 60s. But by 1970, the brothers Gibb had decided to part ways, only to reunite in 1974. Looking for a new sound, they tried an emerging genre and the result was a number one hit. When Stigwood asked the Bee Gees to write new tracks for the film, they were all from the south of France recording a new album and said they didn't have time. Stigwood came over to listen to what they had, liked what he heard, but then asked them to remix the songs to make them sound more disco-y. Which is ironic, because disco was not driven by recording artists. Rather, it was mixers and producers, such as Tom Moulton, Nicky Sciano and Chef Pettibone, who had begun as DJs. Like many other forms of music, disco has several sources, R&B, soul and psychedelia, so there is little benefit in accusing anyone of cultural appropriation. From Madonna to Beyonce, everybody does it. But what is interesting is to contrast the moment disco began to solidify in the early 1970s with the homophobic, bigoted and misogynistic behaviour on display in Saturday Night Fever. Disco really began as a cultural expression at house parties held in Lower Manhattan. Specifically in a private apartment owned by DJ David Mancuso. Mancuso lived on 647 Broadway and it was there that he would host evenings in his members only club The Loft, which provided a safe place for gay men to dance, free from harassment from the city's homophobic police. Remember this was a time when it was illegal for two people of the same sex to dance together. But Mancuso, who was white, was playing records that had already proven popular in gay bars frequented by African-American men. The first single that really made an impact on Mancuso's guests, and was a number that provided the cornerstone to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, 
was Sol Makusa by Cameron saxophonist Manu Dubango. The number that Mancuso helped break into the Billboard charts was Calypso Breakdown by Ralph MacDonald, which also features in the film. Now, some people suggest that disco was a political movement, that DJs, musicians and dancers alike were covertly campaigning for social change. Here's Alice Eccles, Professor of American Studies and History at Rutgers University and author of Hot Stuff, Disco and the Remaking of American Culture. It isn't the case that politics was completely, completely absent. It was that it was scripted, but sort of below the radar in such a way that, you know, sort of people in the know might be able to hear uh, parts of that transcript, but it wouldn't be fully knowable to everyone. But here's what Vincelletti of Rolling Stone magazine has to say in response. I don't think disco was political at all. Robert Bell of Cool and the Gang. Not really, I mean... <laughs> Henry Wayne Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band. You asked me if, if it's... Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I've never heard that before. Martha Wash of The Weather Girls. and record producer Tom Moulton, who produced Glory Gaynor's anthemic hit, I Will Survive. Political. I never looked at it that way. So if these major contributors and influencers of disco never had politics on their minds, what was disco about? Does it have to be about anything? Of course it does. Any and all art has to be about something. Otherwise, it is about nothing. And if it is about nothing, it is never going to connect. No, like every other art, disco is a form of expression. And expression gives space to identity. So the real question is, what was disco expressing? And who was identifying? While its political intention is refutable, what I do think is irrefutable is disco's ethos, which is celebratory. And since the music did originate in gay bars in the years immediately after the Stonewall riots, that celebration was an open defiance of a society that shunned homosexuality in every form. So disco was defiant. And because homosexuality was still illegal, that defiance was subversive. Disco celebrated that subversion. Political music is almost always a music of protest, and oftentimes that protest is fueled by frustration and anger. Not so with disco. Disco was a celebration of the self. I feel like my whole life, right, I, I, I've been told I'm the no good in the family and that... Tony, the only way you're going to survive is to do what you think is right, not what they keep trying to jam you into. You let them do that and you're going to end up nothing but miserable. So where does that leave Saturday Night Fever? In a curious place. While the film went out of its way to deny Disco's roots, in its own very narrow way, it too is about celebrating the self. Tony dances to do exactly that. Yet it is only when he encounters Stephanie 
that he begins to realise just how narrow the Bay Ridge dance floor is. His next step is to acknowledge the Puerto Rican couple were more deserving of first prize in the dance competition. Only then is Tony ready to ride the subway all the way to the village. And perhaps that journey is emblematic of a need to rid the self of bigotry, homophobia and misogyny. I really mean to love.